Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to A Minor Detail. Hope everybody got plowed out this weekend. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, pretty light snowfall for Montgomery County at this time of the year. Uh, we're getting ready for Christmas in our house, although we did not get our tree yet. So we're on an adventure to do that sometime this week. Well, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host, and you can find me on the web at aminordetail.com. And every Sunday, I'm here on blogtalkradio.com slash aminordetail. My guest this evening is Steve Silverman. He is a former at-large Montgomery County Councilman, and he is going to talk and give his take about Montgomery County politics and we're going to talk about his background, his career in Montgomery County politics, former councilman at large. And I want to welcome you. Steve. Hey, how are you? Hey, great. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Ryan. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that we could make this happen. You're uh, you're quite an interesting person, and you've had a a long career in Montgomery County politics. And being somewhat new to this process, you are a an encyclopedia of knowledge. So that's why I was going to pick your brain tonight and we're, uh, we'll get into what's happening, some of these local races, some of the issues that are uh, driving the conversation. But first, Steve, I want to talk about you and your career path and how you got into politics. You were actually born in New Hampshire. Is that correct? Yes, uh, the nation's first primary. Uh, I sort of grew up uh, in the mid to late 60s following uh, the New Hampshire primary, presidential primary cycle. My father was a newsman, and so he would go around the state interviewing uh, would-be presidential candidates. So uh, that's sort of where I caught the, the interest in the political bug. What part of New Hampshire were you from? Uh, Portsmouth, a town of about 20,000 on the seacoast. Uh, if you're driving from Boston to Maine, you go through Portsmouth. It's, uh, it's a wonderful community. Yeah, I know it well. Uh, there's um, quite a few eclectic restaurants there. I was My first time in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, was in September of 2015. They had a, a, a presidential event where they had several of the Republican candidates show up and talk to a group of people, and it's there, I, um, I I saw John McCain. He was stumping for Lindsey Graham. And then we stayed in Portsmouth, Kim and I did, and had some great food. There's a, a waterfront view, one of the neatest towns in America. And it's very quaint. Um, I just love it. And there's we were back there this summer um, and because uh, we stayed in Kenny Bunkport. So, you know, from Kenny Bunkport, it was only a half an hour. Great town. Great right. Town. It's a, yeah, it's a great area. I mean, the closest thing down here for me probably is Annapolis in terms of uh, sort of right on the waterfront and small town charm. But uh, yeah. my dad still lives up there and I've got friends. So uh, I go up about three or four times a year to visit. Yeah. Do you drive? No, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's about a nine to 10 hour drive and no disrespect to the New Jersey turnpike, but it's not exactly uh a scenic route <laughs> between here and, and New Hampshire. Every time I've been to New Hampshire, we've driven. So it's, uh, yeah, when, when I went through the primary, I went in the primary of, uh, in 2016, I was up there the, the primary day and two weeks prior to it. And so I, I went 
the right after the snowstorm we had in 2016. So, um, yeah, needless to say, the Jersey Turnpike wasn't in the best of shape. So, um, so Steve, you um, when did you locate to Maryland? And did was it after you went to American University? You decided to set up shop in Maryland and and raise a family here. Yeah, I I came down in uh, fall 73, went to American for undergraduate, uh, decided to stick around for law school at George Washington. And I was a uh, uh, law clerk and an aide in Annapolis for state legislator. Uh, And uh, 1983, I started uh, my own law practice and uh, and did that uh, for 15 years in downtown Silver Spring representing uh, condominium and homeowners associations. Oh, wow. Uh, so then afterwards, you when did you start getting involved in a county politics? What was your first experience with um, with work? Was it maybe in a, in a sitting on a, a county board or did you um, have some other type of interactions with county officials, and then you decided to run yourself? Well, in uh, in 1993, I was appointed to, uh, this is like the longest name, I think, of any committee the county has, the Silver Spring Transportation Management District Advisory Committee. That's quite okay. a mouthful. Um, we have TMDs in different parts of the county, and they're all designed to support uh, encouraging people to carpool or walk to work or take transit instead of driving to work alone. So they have an advisory committee. I joined it um, uh, in 1993 and met some people there and became active in the fight to get uh, Blair High School built. Blair High yeah. School has uh, been up for years. And it was a concerted effort on the part of uh, faith leaders and PTA leaders, uh, business folks, uh, and community activists to all support uh, keeping the community together and building a new high school uh, at uh, at Four Corners. Um, and uh, then I, I took a run at the state legislature. I, I thought it was uh, a place uh, to go where I could continue my law practice but still get involved. Um, and learned about the power of incumbency. I was one of uh, two people running in a five-person race against three incumbents and got shellacked, and I thought (laughs) that would probably be uh, the beginning and end of my uh, potential candidacy, but uh, I stayed involved, and uh, Doug Duncan became county executive in 1994 and uh, created some uh, Silver Spring advisory committees for uh, focused on the redevelopment of downtown Silver Spring. So along with, with a couple dozen other people, uh, I, I got very active during that period of time. And then uh, uh, there were two openings in 1998 uh, for council at large. And at that time, um, only Derek Berlage was the district representative. We didn't, in Silver Spring, we didn't have anybody from the Silver Spring area who was on the council and there was a lot of concern about Silver Spring not getting its fair share of attention. And so uh, I decided to run as did Blair Ewing, who had been on the school board mm-hmm. and uh, both of us uh, prevailed uh, in the, uh, in the at-large race. So uh, Silver Spring went from having uh, one representative to having three representatives. And now it's the, t- the Tacoma park area is heavily represented 
currently on the council. I think there's four, maybe. Right. It just, about right. Just, work, just worked out that way. But that'll yeah. change, of course, because uh, Mark Elrich, George Leventhal are, are leaving to, to run for county executive. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll see what happens in terms of re- where the representation is. So back in 1998, the the council had nine members. You you are a new member. What was what was the makeup at that point? How many? What who who was sitting on the council, and what were some of those issues that uh, you were coming in on that you ran on? Um, and then we'll talk later about the issues that are facing this council. But I'm more interested to hear what was what what the the political dynamics were like back in '98. Well, the first thing I can tell you is there were Republicans on the county council. Uh, yes. Betty Ann Kroenke, may she rest in peace, uh, represented uh, District One, which is now Roger Berliner's uh, seat. Uh, and uh, a woman named Nancy Dasick, who also passed away, represented the Up County. That's Craig Rice's seat now. Uh, and uh, and and I think the makeup of the council was, uh, I would say, more moderate uh, philosophically than it is today. Um, you had uh, people uh, on the council who were very focused on truly local issues. Uh, like school overcrowding and traffic congestion, and I think that was that was probably those were probably the biggest issues. Although today, advance forward here 20 years, they still remain huge issues. I was very focused on uh, reducing class size at the early grades. Uh, my son had started at Crest Haven Elementary School. Uh, in the White Oak area, Silver Spring, a school that uh, was three-quarters minority and a significant free and reduced meals rate, which is the indicator of of poverty uh, at the federal level. Uh, And uh, there had been efforts all over the country to reduce class sizes at the early grades as a way to address the achievement gap. Uh, And I was very focused on that. It didn't take an educator to understand that if you had 27 kids in a classroom, it was going to be a lot harder to pay attention to the kids who needed more attention than if you had 16 or 17. So that was an area that I ran on and an area that we were very successful in making the change within a couple of years, which still is the case today. Steve, at the time, was the council, looking at the council now, it, it seems partisan, and I'm not using that in a pejorative way, but I see that the, this council has commented on plenty of national issues, and that's okay. I mean, I th- over time, councils adopt different mentalities, and Montgomery County is one of, is one of the nation's largest counties. We are the backdoor to Washington D.C. and it's a very wealthy place to live. But you said earlier that you focused a lot on these local issues. Do you think over time that the council has elevated the conversation to talking more about national issues? Do you think they've lost touch maybe with some of the um, the local issues that play? And they're, I mean, look at look at somebody like Tom Perez who was on the council. I don't know if you served with Tom. Um, I did. Uh, Tom's uh, one term on the council coincided, coincided with my last term on the council. 
And, okay. and even, you know, Tom raised issues. We had, uh, he tried to, uh, to get uh, prescription drugs uh, legislation passed, which we actually did pass to allow importation of drugs from Canada as a way to try to address what then and still is a, a challenge with the, the high cost of prescription drugs. Um, we, uh, we created uh, the first local earned income tax credit uh, in the country. Uh, Mike Subin and I sponsored that uh, along with the County Executive Doug Duncan at the time. Uh, and that's a, a direct way to support uh, uh, folks who are uh, having financial challenges uh, because it's cash directly in their, in their pocket. It's a program that's been around at the federal level since the 70s. The states have adopted and we were the first locally to address it. Uh, so I think we were even then trying to sort of balance the local interests of, of smaller class size and school overcrowding portables with, and traffic congestion with where we could make a difference uh, looking um, at, at a, a leading role. And I think that's what's been happening uh, today with the paid sick leave, uh, with the minimum wage legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that this council has been trying to look at ways to address the economic challenges that so many Montgomery County residents face. And you said at that time the council was balanced more part on, on a more partisan level in that there's Democrats and Republicans, and there's all Democrats now. There's nine Democrats in total. And Steve, just shifting ahead a bit, and we'll come back to your tenure on the council. Is there a possibility that a Republican would be able to win in, in, in Montgomery County today countywide or in a district? I think that's an enormous challenge. Uh, I don't think a Republican can win countywide. Uh, the, the registration numbers are overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, I think that uh, what has sort of happened is over the years, um, the Republican Party has moved away from the uh, uh, Connie Morella Republican Party and moved much, much to the right. Uh, more the Newt Gingrich party. Uh, and I think that that has, has sort of uh, had an impact on the way people look at uh, local elected officials. I think for a Republican to win, uh, even in a district race, it would take a situation where uh, the Democrat was so far you know, out there one way or the other that there was sort of a Democrats for and then fill in the blank, whoever the Republican is, as a way to try to uh, to change the numbers. Uh, so I, I just don't I don't think it's uh, it's very likely that that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't see it either. I don't see a burning desire in any of the districts where I live. I live in District two, which is Craig Rice's district. And that is a traditionally more culturally conservative district. It has much of the upcounty, Boyd's, um, Clarksburg, areas like that. But I still don't see there's an overwhelming drive for uh, a dramatic shift in the direction. And I, I definitely don't see it in 2018, given what's happening at the national level, that trickling down into Montgomery County politics, which takes on a national flavor, 
I, I don't see it happening. I just, I cannot see with yeah, Donald mean, there, Trump. There's, there's, yeah, I would agree with you, Ryan. I think that the, the, the challenge also is you've got to have credible candidates. And uh, uh, my father's Republican, so I don't have anything against, uh, against the two-party system. But I think that the Republican Party in Montgomery County has been extremely uh, weak in uh, fielding uh, strong candidates. The last strong candidate uh, that came in uh, who got elected was Howie Dennis, who uh, yeah. represented uh, District 1. Uh, and in fact, uh, Berliner beat him in 2006 when that was a national election. The Democrats took back control of the House of Representatives after a dozen years. Bob Ehrlich was voted out as governor in Maryland, even though he was very popular. Uh, so I, I don't see 2018 as being particularly ripe for uh, for even the most credible of Republican candidates. So yeah. as a practical matter, the 100,000 or so Democrats who are likely to vote in a in a countywide in 2018 will undoubtedly uh, decide who the next county executive and the county council members are, along with the state legislators and, and state senators and delegates. Steve, to back up your second term when you first ran, what was the order? Did you how did you place in that race as far as the the at large? Were you one, two, three, or four? So in my first race, I finished fourth. I won by six hundred ninety-seven votes out of seventy-five thousand, and uh, it was uh, was a nail biter. I had to wait for the absentees to be counted a couple days later, and then uh, four years later in two thousand two. Uh, Doug Duncan and I put together a slate uh, called N Gridlock to be focused hmm. on transportation, particularly the intercounty connector, which was a concept but had not moved forward. Uh, and uh, I finished first uh, at large in 2002, and uh, that was the election that uh, that George Leventhal and Nancy Florine, two of my running mates, uh, joined the council. Wow. Okay. Quite some history there. And you talked about transportation. That's um, an issue that is on all of our minds here in Montgomery County. And that is, I would say, it's our single biggest focus, at least mine, in, in funding of schools and education and the Board of Education. Well, I, I would yeah, I would yeah. agree with you. I mean, we've progress has been made. I mean, the, the ICC was built, so now there's a way, even though it's a toll road, there's a way for people to get east-west without going on Randolph Road or 28 or any of the other back roads. Um, that took, uh, give or take, 50 years um, from concept to uh, to opening it up for it to happen. So the Purple Line has finally uh, broken ground Uh that was a concept that Paris Glendenning, the governor of the state of Maryland, came up with in 1999, my first year on the council, and it, uh, it's, uh, it's taken 18 years uh, just to break ground on the Purple Line. So um, we're very slow in transportation projects, and, and while those are great projects, it doesn't address the, the sort of north-south uh, aspect uh, to things. Uh, that's really going to be very important. The 270 corridor, Route 29, where I live, uh, got a tremendous amount of cars coming in every day from outside the mm -hmm. county. And I think that's the, that's an issue that cuts across. Doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter what your demographics are. 
that's an issue that uh, impacts everybody's quality of life. Steve, when you were reelected in 2002, uh, that overlapped with uh, Ehrlich's first and only term as governor of Maryland. And you mentioned the ICC. I had Governor Ehrlich on the show a few months back, and we had a long discussion. And it was shortly after Larry Hogan dedicated the ICC to Bob Ehrlich. Now, I know that Bob was influential in making sure that the project passed. However, there were other several key players in moving the, the project in the right direction. You were one of them, as well as Doug Duncan. Who were some of the others that made the ICC a reality? Well, I think, I mean, there were other council members. Mike Subin uh, was a, a huge supporter, a colleague of mine. Uh, and, in fact, that was what part of what Ann Gridlock, the slate was about, was to, to flip the votes on the inter-county connector because up to that point the council was at, at best split but at worst opposed to it. And, of course, if you've got a local jurisdiction that's opposed to a road project or a transit project, it's not going to happen. But I have to say in the give credit where credit is due category – um, in my opinion, there's no way the ICC would have ever been built other than with Bob Ehrlich as governor uh, because he was able to contact the Bush White House and make it a priority transportation project. Uh, Paris Glendening had started out his first term supporting the ICC and then in his second term opposed it. So it was going nowhere until uh, Ehrlich uh, won in 2002 and made it a priority and uh, worked with the uh, federal government to get it done. So uh, there was a lot of local support uh, for the ICC, but uh, it really took uh, the governor, I think, to, to, to put it over the finish line. Governor Ehrlich tells the story pretty well, and he said that when he was first elected, he, he was invited to Camp David with um, President George W. Bush, and that's where he made the hard ask to, to make sure that he got the funding to do that, and you're right. He reached out, literally talked to the president of the United States and uh, with with members of Congress and being a former member of Congress. Of course, he had an inside track into how the that process uh, moves and how the sludges move through the channels. So some of the council members now, um, one namely, um, Councilman Elrit, who is running for county executive, he – still vehemently opposes the project and calls it an environmental disaster. I, I think that we can't take away that it is a project that was part of the, was it, it was part of the master plan for years. Um, well, it had been on the drawing board for a very long time. And, and uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I think when you take a look at the, at the current council members, I mean, the road's been up and running. The only debate is, is utilization speeds and toll roads. Even, even Phil Andrews, who was an ardent opponent to the ICC, um, not that he became a fan, but he fought uh, to try to get the tolls reduced. Uh, he thought they were too high. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a position that others have, have taken up as, as well. Uh, but uh it's utilized. It's an important way of relieving uh, congestion, and uh, uh, and I think it, uh, it 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 along with the Purple Line are two uh, extraordinary uh, transportation achievements uh, in the county that get people moving. Steve, in 2006, there was a, uh, it, of course, Doug Duncan had decided to 
run for governor and would forego running for county executive again. And this was a time when there were no term limits and council members could and county executive candidates could run as many times as they they wanted to. And you decided to run for county executive. And one of your opponents was now county executive Ike Leggett, who's been a longtime county executive. When you jumped into that race, uh, what was the what was the consensus? Was it that uh, Silverman had a shot or that he was running an uphill battle against Leggett? Or what was the dynamics of that race? Well, what happened in 2002 was that uh, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend lost to uh, Bob Ehrlich in what was considered to be a huge upset. No one sort of predicted that because there had not been a, a Republican governor since the 60s in Maryland, but um, Ehrlich won, and that opened the door for Duncan to look at running for for governor, and that opened the door for me to start looking at county executives, something I certainly wouldn't have done against Duncan. We worked very closely together on the council, so I wasn't thinking about challenging him. Uh, the issue for me really was to start going out um, and talking to people about potential support um, starting in uh, 2003, 2004, which I did. Uh, Ike at the time was the chair of the Democratic Party statewide and had, had left office after 16 great years on the council. And uh, no one had really talked about him coming back. And then he started having some conversations, I think, during the course of uh, fall of uh, 2004 and in January 2005, decided to get into the race. So at the time uh, that that Ike got in, I had already raised money and had already started to build uh, support. Uh, um, and uh, the question was whether any of my council colleagues were going to get into the race. And, of course, once Ike got in, that was it. It was a two-person race. Turned turned yeah. out not to be a squeaker. <laughs> How much? What was the percentage that Ike bested you by? Oh gosh, I think it was like twenty five percent. It was it was a classic blowout. That was two thousand six. Yeah. Was a year in which there remember the the Purple Line was still a dream. The ICC um, had not broken ground. I think at the, even by then. Uh, and we were mired in traffic congestion, and uh, there were a lot of cranes up building commercial buildings and retail and uh, residential, and there was no traffic congestion relief, and and it was a a moment in time where the pendulum swung sort of the other direction to the no-growth side or slow-growth side, and um, I had been on the council for eight years, and had, had, of course, voted on a whole host of projects. Ike had the benefit of not being on the council for four years. Uh, and uh, he was uh, he came out as a little bit slower growth than I was. And, and I think that was uh, a big factor in the, in the, in the way the race uh, played out. Other council members got elected that year as well that uh, were considered to be uh, more uh, slow growth. Uh, but all in all, you know, on the on the pendulum. But all in all, the the race between you and Ike was it a clean fight? Did you guys get into the mud, or was it ever dirty? Yeah, we just talked about issues. Uh, he cool. talked about my record. I talked about his record. We were friends on the council. We had very similar voting records. 
I had a lot of friends in common uh, who had some tough choices to make. They would always tell us uh, that it was really hard. uh, And uh, it was uh, when the primary was over, I, you know, sort of joined forces with him. And uh, I mean, I, the, the, the primary was the election for all intents and purposes, but it was important to show solidarity. And I was happy to do that. And we remained friends and, I was very fortunate that uh, he called me a couple years later and uh, invited me to join his cabinet running the Department of Economic Development. So we uh, yeah, got reunited huge. again. Yeah, and then in 2006, you also campaigned, um, well, I wouldn't say against, but uh, another familiar name was in the, in the, in the race, Robin Ficker. He was an independent at that time running for county executive. Well, Robin's been around, uh, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with, but uh, he he's uh, run uh, perpetually. He won one race in 1978, uh, served one term as a member of the House of Delegates as a Republican, uh, and has uh, run ever since. Uh, I don't uh, didn't find him credible then, don't find him credible now. <laughs> well, there was, I don't know if you were at the, the latest or heard the latest about Robin, he was at a the, the minority legislative breakfast this past oh, Friday. Oh, I did hear that. Yes, I yes. I wrote a story about it, and he had manufactured his own question that had not been written, and the moderator called him on it. He continued to uh, move forward with his agenda, and it was it was an interesting situation to say the least. I had several people reach out to me and say, "Hey, you." you did you know about this? And I said, no. And so they, they relayed the story. Then I contacted the, the moderator of the, the county executive forum. What a mess. Good Lord. Robin just always seems to find controversy. So, well, and that's his style and he'll continue to do that where there's an opportunity that presents itself. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, I believe strongly that the, this county executive primary and the on the democratic side whomever emerges from that primary that's the general that's that's the general right there well i don't think there's any question about that uh i mean the last time there was a contested general election was 1990 when neil potter upset sid kramer in the primary and then sid ran as a write-in in the general it was not successful uh, but there were people that uh, were very strong Kramer supporters who thought that uh, Neil Potter would take the county in the wrong direction, so they ran a write-in. But um, otherwise, uh, uh, you've you got to go back to the beginning of county of the county executive format of government uh, in 1970 when Jim Gleason was a Republican and became uh, became county executive. That was uh, that was the last uh, I think serious shot. Uh, Steve, when you were appointed by the, well, I should, I want to back up for one second. When, after you were defeated by Ike Leggett in that intervening period, did you go back to practicing law? No, I had done that for 15 years. I was happy to not be uh, doing uh, billable hours anymore. Uh, I had an opportunity uh, to join Doug Gansler at the Maryland Attorney General's office. He appointed me to head the Consumer Protection Division, which I did for a little over a year. And then uh, I moved into uh, a director of uh, 
uh, health care and aging policy for the attorney general. And uh, it was in that position that uh, that Ike had called me to uh, see about my coming back to the county. Yeah. And you and then he appointed you as the economic development director. What is the what is the job description uh, to for that particular department? And how many people did you have working under you? And what was um, what was some of your responsibilities for the uh, for the county? Well, there are about 30 people that were in the department. After I left at the end of 2014, uh, I decided to move in the direction that some other jurisdictions like Fairfax and Prince George's and Howard counties have done to privatize, to sort of create a nonprofit outside of county government, but with government funding. And that's now called the Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation. Uh, At the time, um, this was spring of '09, and we were just hitting stride in the in the Great Recession. So Ike's charge to me was uh, figure out what, if anything, we can do. And so we we worked on different programs. We created the first local biotech tax credit program in the country. We created the first cybersecurity tax credit program, both of which were designed to try to encourage. Uh, investment and early stage startup uh, companies uh, in the county. Uh, We did a variety of economic development uh, funding uh, for projects like keeping uh, NOAA in Silver Spring, where that was at risk to go to Prince George's County, 4,400 employees. We had another 3,000 that were working in the Park Lawn area of Rockville, uh, HHS employees, and again, that was at risk, so we Work to support uh, uh, the owner of those buildings to to retain to be able to get the rent uh, at a level that uh, would prevail uh, by uh, by the federal government the GSA uh, approval process uh, and uh, and we work to uh, to try to encourage other the co- companies to stay. Uh, Choice Hotels uh, was uh, looking at going to Virginia where its senior executives lived, but. We were able to work with the state and have them come to downtown uh, Rockville. Uh, so it was uh, it was sort of an all hands on deck to come up with programs, but also to identify the companies that might be at risk of uh, of leaving. Uh, of course, you always want to try to attract companies, but mm-hmm. um, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, you know, in the Washington region, there's a perception somehow or another that big companies are leaving all over the country and coming to Washington, but I can tell you that's not the case. It's uh, it may be uh, one or two a year uh, that uh, consider uh, uh, relocating to the Washington area from wherever they are. It's a, it's a very costly place uh, to do business uh, in terms of cost of living in the Washington region. So a lot of companies just stay where they are. Yeah. And then moving forward, you resign in about this time, uh, uh, back in 2014. So three years ago, you said, um, I'm going to go to work for myself. And then that's when you started FS Gov Relations LLC. What is it that you're doing now? You're, you're a, basically, you're doing government relations and consulting, um, and you have various clients that you're working with and Um, So tell us a little bit about uh, this gig that you're doing now, uh, Steve. Well, I uh, had spent 15 years in county and state government, and uh, I 
appreciated every moment of it, enjoyed it a great deal, and the people that I worked with. But I, I thought there might be an opportunity to go back in the private sector. I did not want to go practice law. As I said, uh, I think most lawyers would say that they're not big fans of the billable hour concept, but that's the way it is in most law firms. I didn't want to do that. Uh, there are local lobbyists, but they have tended to uh, lobby the council uh, again with the same sort of business model uh, as practicing law. And so I thought there was an opportunity to set up shop uh, the way they do it in Annapolis and at the federal level, sort of a flat rate um, for the year. Uh, and I represent uh, a fair amount of real estate uh, companies that are uh, building uh, smart growth projects in places like Bethesda, Wheaton, Silver Spring, the White Flint area. Um, but I've also had the privilege of uh, working with some nonprofits. Uh, a Wider Circle is one of my clients. Uh, they're one of the leading anti-poverty agencies led by Mark Burgell, a, a, a tremendous um, a uh, man uh, who has devoted his, his life uh, to uh, the cause of uh, ending poverty. Uh, I work with the CCACC, which is the largest uh, uh, Chinese-American uh, nonprofit in the state. Uh, oh. They do some great programs and uh, just finished up working with uh, the, the uh, developmental uh, disability providers, uh, about 25 of them in connection with the minimum wage legislation to ensure that the county follows through on its commitment to, to help those organizations as they uh, meet the county requirement of, uh, of $15 an hour. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm privileged to have my son uh, working with me. He's a college yeah. park graduate, and, uh, and uh, it's been a, a great opportunity to, to work with him, and, and uh, it's been very enjoyable for both of us. Yeah, I know that you have three children, and I I had read an article in uh, the the Washington Business Journal in which you said your your decision to to leave public service loomed large on tuition being a primary factor, and that's true. Having having a child that's entering high school in 2018, um, he's going to be heading off to Wooten, so we're um, we are well aware of the competitiveness that uh, high school students will inevitably experience here in Montgomery County. And we are financially planning, getting ready for that process. So it's a, it's a lot. And I I can't imagine having three kids that, you know, are all moving into, I I assume are your, all of your children in college or or have graduated college. Jordan's out. I've actually got four Jordan's out. Uh, Sage is a junior uh, at Hawaii Pacific university. Caden just started at Frostburg uh, in Western Maryland. And Elaine is still here. She's a junior in high school, but uh, has her sights uh, set on uh, college park or or some other great institution. So uh, it's a, so a lot of paperwork, but uh, it's, a, it's a great, great opportunity for them. Yeah, and you have an opportunity to be influential in county politics. This is a big election year, and the council's makeup is going to change dramatically because of the term limits that had passed that is now limiting um, several members of the council. And the the county council um, – Mike Leggett has decided not to to seek re-election, which I think we're up to seven total candidates 
running for county executive, and I'm going to do my best to name them. So you have three members of the county council who are current councilmen running, um, George Levenfall, Mark Elridge, and Roger Berliner. And then we have former Rockville Mayor Rose Krasnow. We have uh, Maryland's House Majority Leader uh, Bill Frick. And we have Potomac businessman uh, David Blair. And we have Robin Ficker. So that's that's seven candidates, six that's Democrats. Very, very good. Now, now the real test is: Can you name all twenty-nine at-large council members without oh, looking at a piece of paper? I, I could try, <laughs> it but I, an un- it's, a, it's an unprecedented election. Uh, we've <laughs> never had this many people run for county executive. Uh, the most that's ever happened really has been three in the Democratic Party, and when it comes to council at large. When I ran in 1998, there were two vacant seats, uh, four at large. Uh, Mike Leggett and Mike Subin were running for re-election. There were a total of eight of us, and there were two openings. So um, I think that uh, that the fact there are three openings plus the uh, public financing component has provided yeah. um, an opportunity for some folks to put their toe in the toes in the water. Steve, what's your take on this county executive race? I, I'm fascinated by the dynamics at play, and I don't see any candidate at this time having any sort of leg up. Now, this is this. I mean, this is purely my analysis, but I, I can say that you have someone like Mark Elrich who has a a built-in base similar to that of maybe Jamie Raskin, who had a strong activist base. In your neck of the woods, in Silver Spring, Tacoma Park, the down county people. But then we have up county, and you have several county residents, thousands of us um, who are following this, and I've heard from many people. They're discouraged with county politicians as usual, and they're maybe looking towards an outsider choice. Um, And who knows who that could be? So what's your take on this executive race? Well, at this point, I'd say undecided is way ahead. Uh, Contrary to popular opinion, and I know this from the polling that I saw in my own race in 2006, uh, all of us who are in office, even if we've run for years countywide, uh, have a belief that we're well-known because we tend to go to all the same events where everybody knows us. Uh, I think Blair Lee coined the term the fabulous 5,000, which are the 5,000 people, give or take, that are on the boards and commissions and organizations and and focus on the county. Uh, But in a Democratic primary, they actually let another 95,000 people vote. And those folks just flat out uh, don't know the names of many of these candidates, much less what they stand for, because uh, unless somebody's doing something extraordinary it's only the county executive uh, congressional representative senator governor that have high name recognition and high favorabilities so i think that even though you've got um, a george leventhal in the race who's going to be in there when the election comes up next year for 16 years mark elrich and roger berliner for 12 years bill frick's been in the legislature for 10 years uh, i think that it's Uh, probably likely that most people uh, who even most uh, people who will vote, who are likely to vote in Democratic primaries because they've got a voting history, probably don't know these candidates 
very well. And if they do, they may not have a clear view of where they are on the issues. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it could be more wide open. Uh, the, the wild card, I think, in the race uh, is David Blair because uh, Elrich and, and Krasnow and Leventhal are all doing public financing which means that if they're successful, they will probably have about a million dollars to campaign with, which sounds like a lot, but not yeah. when you're trying to reach 100, 125,000 people along with everybody else running for council, delegate, senator, governor. Uh, so um, what might have been a lot of impact through direct mail may not be there. Um, Bill Frick and Berliner are doing private financing. We'll know in mid-January how uh, successful they've been in that regard when the report campaign finance reports come out. But the Blair has the resources, perhaps of any of them, uh, to be on radio and TV at the uh, at the end of the campaign, just like running for Congress or governor. Uh, and uh, he is truly the outsider in the race. Um, having said that. Um, Rose Krasnow is known by a fair amount of people that are insiders. But when you look at the race, um, uh, she's the only woman in the race at this point, And there are five white men. And that may make a difference uh, this time around. Kathleen Matthews uh, did quite well in her congressional race. Uh, and I think uh, just uh, by nature of uh, Rose being a woman, uh, puts her in a, a different category than the other five men who are running, regardless of what their positions are on issues. Do you think the race is set as is? Do you anticipate anybody else jumping in? Um, I haven't really heard anybody else, but you never know. Uh, I, I think uh, there, there was a Washington Post story uh, uh, over the weekend talking about the the demographic uh, nature, demographic changes in the county uh, uh, in terms of uh, minority, uh, increasing minority population and that you do not have a minority candidate uh, running. Uh, and so uh, it's possible that someone might uh, run, but uh, I just haven't heard any names at this point. I do see a David Blair as someone who may be able to, it's the, the outsider versus some of the consummate insiders, David Blair is putting together quite a team and he has significant resources to be flexible with and to use. And even though his name recognition is probably much lower than some of the other candidates, it maybe that doesn't matter. Look what, look how the race occurred between Jamie Raskin as well as, um, uh, David Trone and David Trone was, I don't want to say virtually unknown, but among the activists, he was unknown. He jumped in um, a, a little later than everybody else and then threw a lot of money in and bought himself that name recognition pretty quickly. And there's a theory that had the race in CD8 in 2016 lasted a few more weeks, maybe Trone would have won. Um, well, but... I think it, you know. I I think what was very clear in that race is Jamie had a, a hardcore base, very left of center, uh, union support, Sierra Club support. Kathleen Matthews was a woman in the race. Matron was a complete outsider. Uh, but the key here, everybody focused on Trone spending you know thirteen million dollars of his own money, 
But the reality is that Jamie and Kathleen, I think, spent close to $2 million, if not more, which is enough to get their message out. You, you don't have to have more money than the next person. You just have to have enough money to get your message out. And, and I think that's going to be, you know, the real question. The difference here is that with the exception of Blair, I don't see any of the rest of these candidates getting any opportunity to be on radio or TV. Uh, so it becomes a matter of how you get through the clutter of the mailbox and social media and phone calls uh, if you don't have those uh, those resources. Uh, yeah. But I, I think it's also the Washington Post and the Teachers Union and Sierra Club have historically had a, an impact in terms of persuading undecided voters uh, who to vote for in these races. And I think in a, in a race like the county executive race and certainly the council at large races uh, race, uh, I think the third party validators like the post, the teachers, uh, Sierra club will have more impact than they would have in the past simply because uh, if you're uh, if you're a if you're a voter who either doesn't know any of these people or might know a name or two, but doesn't know what they stand for, then you're going to look to uh, organizations or a newspaper to say, uh, okay, this is, this is the person the post is endorsing or the teachers or Sierra club. And that's what I'm going to go with. Right. Um, moving over to the County council at large race in the district one race. Um, there's, I, I could ha- I have no idea how to name all the candidates. I know quite a bit of them. I would say I know more than half of the candidates running. Um, dare I ask, does anyone in this race, does anyone have a leg up? Uh, maybe Hans Reimer because he is an incumbent? Well, I'll just – I'll make the following comment. I, I, I can joke with Hans, who I've known for years. Uh, he first ran in 2006 – uh, in, in District 5, uh, the same race as Valerie Irvin, um, that uh, Hans may have some challenges simply because he's alphabetically challenged. Yeah. Uh, you've got 29 people in the race. I don't even know what the ballot's going to look like, but it's not helpful if you're an R. Um, so uh, he, he should be getting a fair amount of endorsements and should have resources. But again, you have no idea how it could play out. Look, the reality is that people are going to go in, and again, I think people will be looking to uh, teachers, Sierra Club, SEIU, uh, uh, the Post, to to help them make a decision. But I have to say that I think if you're at the top part of the alphabet, that's got to be worth something in a race where you might win with twenty thousand votes uh, and. And to sort of, and, and you've got some very credible folks. Gabe Albornoz was uh, is the head of the Department of Recreation uh, for the county. Uh, Marilyn Balcom has uh, run the Gaithersburg Germantown Chamber for yeah. years. Charlie Barkley is a sitting delegate. Cherie Branson was a council member for a term, you know, for a year, and then ran the Office of Procurement. So you could sort of go down through the list and pick out some folks who have either run before or have some yeah. um, some background or core constituencies. But uh, I have to say, at the end of the day, uh, most people are going to take a look at this list, and it would be shocking if the average Democratic primary voter is going to know uh, uh, more than a few of the names, much less that anybody stands for anything. 
because everybody will be for traffic congestion relief. Everybody will be for relieving overcrowded schools. And it's going to be very hard for anybody to draw a distinction. Well, there's some candidates out there that are really working hard. Uh, Bill Conway is, I I see him everywhere. Um, And uh, so is uh, Juan Dang. um, And I see Danielle Metive. She's, she is working extraordinarily hard. Evan Glass, who nearly won in 2014. Um, There's a lot of these guys. Um, Gabe has, Gabe has a built-in advantage being at the very top of the alphabet. So absolutely. I, just, I mean, Will Jawan, Will Jawando's running. He's uh, uh, he had run for delegate, uh, came real close in District 20, then ran for Congress. Uh, Rebecca Smondrowski, well in the primary. Right. Re- Re- Rebecca is on the school board, and again, depending on what the teachers union decides to do, um, it's not even so much a matter, for example, with the teachers union of the fact that they're a union it's really more a matter of uh, that they're a validator in a county where everybody supports education and you got a list of 29 candidates, then if you're, if you're the average voter, you're going to say, well, how do I decide who's really the pro education candidate? And that's where the teachers I think will probably have some outsized influence versus uh, versus in the past. That's it's going to be wild to watch all these candidates get together in one place and do a form of of the sorts. I've seen it. Well, I can only ima- yeah, I can I can only imagine if I was running a forum, I would give everybody a couple of minutes at the beginning, and then I'd say go to everybody goes to their tables and everybody can sort of walk around, uh, kind of like they do with these uh, the Department of Transportation does when they're when they're talking about a road or transit project where they have these open <laughs> houses and you can go to different tables because you can't have a candidates forum, you know, with 29 people uh, in any way, shape, or form. I did want to talk about the District One race, which I think is yeah, kind of interesting to replace Roger one. Berliner. Um, you know, again, you've got a solid group of credible candidates um, in the race. I, I confess to not knowing all of them, but Pete Fosselman's a former mayor of, of Kensington. He's working for the county now uh, as a project manager in the White Oak area. Uh, Andrew Friedson, who uh, had uh, had uh, worked for uh, Peter, Comptroller Peter Francho. Uh, Anna Saul Gutierrez, a sitting delegate. Uh, Reggie Uldak, who actually was Berliner's chief of staff, I think, early on in Roger's term. Meredith Wellington, former planning board member. Now, that's a race where, you know, you could end up with uh, 8,000 votes in carrying the day because it could get split up that way. And, and I think that, you know, there's a race where, um, you know, you've got three women uh, who – are within the insider world are relatively well known. Uh, and so you don't have a situation like with the county executive race where Rose Krasna is the only woman in the race. Yeah. Uh, in this case, you've got three, but uh, that's going to be a, a trench uh, warfare uh, race, uh, literally door to door, yard sign by yard sign, uh, because uh, it's really just a few thousand votes could carry the day. It's, I agree. That is one race that I'm keeping an eye on, and I've seen many of these candidates who are out and about, and I will say Andrew Friedson is working really hard. He is everywhere, Steve. He is everywhere. 
Um, yeah, I, I see. Him. I mean, I think that's yeah, I think that's what you know what happens. I mean, if you're serious about this, they're 18 hour days, and it's uh, and it it doesn't stop. It's a it's a sprint right from the beginning. The other race that's going to be worth you know looking at least at this point that I don't know whether at the end of the day it'll be competitive or not, but um, in district three, which is uh, Sid Katz's seat, he's the former Gaithersburg mayor. He won a tough oh, yeah. primary in 2014. Uh, and he's being challenged by Ben Schneider, uh, uh, a young uh, activist uh, who's, who's out there as I hear it, uh, you know, knocking on doors and working hard uh, there's some people who sort of liken this race to the race that Phil Andrews ran uh, in 1998 against Bill Hanna, who had been on the council for years. And Phil came out of nowhere and, and uh, knocked off Hanna in an upset. So I, I know Sid Katz is putting together a, a team and an effort and working hard, as is Schneider. So um, I, I'm sure Sid's not going to take it uh, for granted, even though uh, – Normally, uh, sitting council members do well in their re-election efforts. Steve, have you been following any of the race in District 2 among the Republicans? I just barely. I mean, I've seen a little bit of information, but not not much uh, well, on that uh, on that race. Do you foresee Craig Rice having any problems in in winning that district again? I don't think so. I mean, he's got a couple of token opponents in the primary, but again, uh, the dynamics of the district in terms of how they're drawn are heavily weighted towards a Democrat. Uh, uh, and the, the other aspect is that when people talk about the impact of Trump uh, on a general election, yeah. uh, it's one thing if you're Larry Hogan and you're going to spend you know, $15 million running for reelection. You can try to distance yourself from Trump. Uh, but when you're a Republican at the county council level, I don't think it's going to make much difference. I think there's just going to be a lot of people who are going to just vote, vote for the Democrat. That's what happens in these national elections. Uh, uh, that's what happened locally. Uh, Howie Dennis was an incumbent, yeah. uh, in 2006, lost to Berliner, even though Howie had the endorsement of the Washington Post and the unions. Uh, but he happened to be Republican in a year which was a national Democratic landslide. So I, I don't see Rice really having a tough race at all. Do you see that happening again, 2018, becoming one of those strong Democratic years? Uh, it certainly seems that way. Uh, I mean, certainly at the at state legislative level and the the council levels, uh, county council, council, com county commissioners, I got to believe that's going to be the case in the, uh, in Maryland. The governor's race, a completely different situation because you've yeah. got so many people running in the primary uh, against what will be a very well-funded Larry Hogan. Very popular as well. Larry, Larry. That's true. I, I don't see, I, I just don't know if, if any of the Democrats will have the gravitas to to take him out. Now, a thousand and one variables could occur between now and next year's election. We don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, there's less than 11. There's 11 months to the election um, and we'll see. And I, I hope I hope that uh, whomever emerges from the Democratic primary, that it's a 
that's a, it's an issues based campaign. Um, Larry's had a good term. Uh, you know, his first term has been pretty good, and I, I can say that. Um, I, I, I'd imagine that would be a, a good race, and it seems like that's forming. That it's an establishment race in Baker's corner, and then the outsider, maybe a Ben Jealous. That those two competing factions look like they're forming as we speak. So could it come down to a Baker and and Ben Jealous race in the end? Uh, it certainly could. Uh... When you take a look, but Kevin Kamenetz has resources. I assume we'll see in mid-January. He's probably got at least $2 million in the bank, which is enough wow. uh, to be competitive. Yeah, he, well, he's been raising money uh, for several years as the incumbent county executive in Baltimore County. So uh, he could, uh, you know, and, you know, could make a difference. He's coming out of the Baltimore region. Uh, so that's a, that's a factor, but at, at the end of the day, the primary is going to be over at the end of June, whoever the democratic nominee who's going to be coming out is going to have $0 in their campaign account. Uh, and I think it's going to be a real challenge to consolidate the democratic party at that point and to go off and raise money for an election. That's a few months later against a very well-financed governor. That's why yeah. I think, you know, most people, I think, believe that if it's a national election, that's going to knock some, some points off of Hogan's totals. But uh, if he distances himself enough from Trump, uh, then it's going to be a real challenge for the Democrat to win. Yeah, I agree. And um, I'm following these races closely as, as you are and taking a look at some of these issues. And, you know, as, as we're wrapping up, I see maybe three or four big issues that most people in Montgomery County are talking to, or at least having conversations with these candidates. And that is education, transportation, the infrastructure problem, and some of these more cultural issues that, that are at play um, and as well as economic development. And so some of the candidates are going to differ um, and, and, but not too much. I, I would say, I think you're going to see, some candidates that are going to be a little bit more moderate than others. And it's going to be that up County versus down County dichotomy. So we're going to find out what happens there. If it's down County that takes it again, or if some of these up County County council at large candidates have a real shot. Well, I think the issue there is how they can appeal uh, elsewhere. When I ran at large, uh, I identified pockets throughout the County. I had, uh, folks who were supporters in the North Potomac area, up in Germantown, um, in Bethesda, and I sort of tried to uh, narrow uh, the focus on issues that were much more local uh, to them. And I think that's what somebody's got to do if you're running countywide. You cannot really run countywide. You have to work off of a base that you think makes sense, and then you have to identify some issues that are much more local. Um, the equivalent of running for governor you identify issues that are of concern in Western Maryland or the Eastern shore, Baltimore city, or the Washington suburbs, you sort of break it down that way. I think you have to do that if you're running countywide. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, there's a million and, and, and there's a million people and more in County in Montgomery County. So um, let me just wrap this up. And final question, 
Steve, do you think it helps or hurts Hans Reimer that he is the council president going into an election year? Well, having been council president twice, uh, although, uh, you know, it, it, it cuts a couple different ways because you, you have to speak for the whole council. But the visibility that you have is extraordinary if you use it. Uh, the town hall meetings that you'll be chairing, the opportunity to, to, to be in front of the media. I mean, I think it's an enormous advantage for Hans, uh, particularly in a field of, at this point, 29 and counting, the filing deadlines the end of February. Uh, right. So I, I think that's a, that's a plus. I think the real question for him is whether he can be more than just the president of the council, whether he can identify a, a signature issue. Uh, that he wants to drive through either, you know, during the budget process, because remember, he's he's council president for the year, but the primary is in June. So it's really what happens over the next several months that will indicate whether he's, in effect, taking advantage of the presidency. Yeah, well, we'll we'll there's a lot to follow. County politics in Montgomery County is some of the most talked about politics around the state. I say Montgomery County and Baltimore County dominates Maryland politics and, of course, what's happening in Annapolis. Big gubernatorial election, the county executive race. Um, I'm fascinated by the county executive race, as you are as uh, as well, Steve. I, I think that there's going to be, as these forums progress and seeing what where the candidates come down in January is looking at the money. Some of the, I, I think some candidates might drop when they realize they just don't have any money to compete. And that's going to be a major that's going to be a major pivotal pivotal moment um, moving forward. Would you agree? Well, I, on the one hand, that would be likely to be the case. On the other hand, you got to take a look at who these folks are. I mean, three of them are term limited, so yeah. I don't see either Elrich Berliner or Eleventhall getting out of the race. David oh, no. Blair has resources. Rose Krasnow is the only woman in the race, uh, and then you got Bill Frick who had had a run for uh, for attorney general when Brian Frosch got in, he backed down to return to the state legislature. Bill ran, was running for Congress and then Throne got in uh, and Aruna Miller and Roger Mano and Bill decided to run for exec. So I'm not sure you're going to see anybody drop out because of whatever the resources are in January, because there's a lot of opportunity after that uh, to pull together resources. The real question in the County executive race, I think is whether anybody is going to be able to distinguish themselves on a particular issue or two, uh, as opposed to uh, them all sort of talking about traffic congestion relief and relieving overcrowded schools uh, to try to see if there's a, if there's a signature issue that they want to want to tout for their candidacy, that I think remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, I'm sure that in, in, as you're traversing the county and meeting lots of people, uh, I bet you've been asked a few times, "Hey, what are your plans? Are you thinking about running?" As as inevitably oh. that that, that happens. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the thought. Uh, folks have uh, talked to me from time to time, but that's not in the cards. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm, I have to say I'm enjoying uh, 
not running around, spending 18 hours a day having a campaign and being able to spend some time with my family. That's, uh, that's really very, very important. So uh, that's, uh, that's not on the, on the horizon for me. Uh, had my well, opportunity, it, and I'm happy to stay involved uh, as I can uh, on 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 issues. Well, must be, I mean you you can set your schedule. You are working in the private sector. You're you're doing something that you're enjoying, which is a a fusion between the public public and private sector. You have that strong base of knowledge that you can help your clients find their success. And so um, that that kind of work must be rewarding. But um, I, I think that um, you are a wealth of knowledge in Montgomery County, and I always appreciate having these conversations. So, Steve, I want to thank you for um, for coming on. And I know that you and your family celebrate Hanukkah, so I want to wish you a happy Hanukkah coming up. And, thank, um, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And look, Ryan, I appreciate what you're doing. With thank the you. demise of the Gazette newspapers, uh, it's really important uh, that that you're out there reporting and covering things, uh, it it gets circulated and it can make a difference. And I think that's one of the pieces that's really uh, missing from uh, local government. For all the focus we have on the national scene, uh, it's it's really about what happens at the local level that impacts our lives. Yeah, no, I agree. I and I appreciate that. I'm I'm working hard and trying to find the stories and talk about these issues that are driving conversations that I hear about. And the struggle here, Steve, and we'll wrap up, but the, the struggle here is, is that the, that fabulous 5,000, but it's more like for me, the, the 500 people, I, I talk to the same people all the time, but I really want my work to be shared with people who otherwise are not involved in the process. And it's great to have a lot of the, insiders and opinion makers reading your your material and that goes for you know seventh state blog um david lublin and and adam and some of these other guys that are doing um stuff for on the local level but we want to reach people who are not necessarily paying attention and start getting them to to pay attention that's where that's where the races are going to be won and that's where people um can become more involved in the local and that's my end goal with what I do. And I want just want people to listen in and, and, and be activated sure. and get involved with within their community. So um, that's, well, keep that's up the, the only great goal. work. <laughs> well, keep up the great I, work, right? I appreciate it. Well, you take care. Um, I really appreciate right, your you time, too. Steve, for coming on on uh, Sunday evening. And, um, and you and I will catch up soon. Okay. Take care. Have a good All holiday right, season. You too. Bye bye. All right. Steve Silverman, former at-large Montgomery County Councilman, uh, wealth of knowledge. Steve is a great guy, has a lot of information to offer. And if you're ever interested in getting together with Steve, he will certainly sit down. And um, yeah, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he came on and uh, we'll have him back again. So with that, I will. Well, I want to wish everybody a very happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all of my Gentile friends, as as I am, and to all of my Jewish friends, Happy Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. And then on December the 23rd, we will read our grievances for um, Festivus for the rest of us. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what the program will be um, finishing out this year. 
But um, this could be the last show before the end of, of the year. I have a lot going on um, from now until uh, the first of the year. But my goal is to have every candidate running for public office in Montgomery County come on to the show and have a conversation just like we did this evening and talk about issues in an interview format, either on the phone or in person, whatever works best, pre-recorded. I am flexible. You can always reach me. My cell phone is area code 301-991-4220. My email is ryan, R-Y-A-N, at aminordetail.com. And reach out and we'll schedule something and put together a conversation. And I love this. I, I really enjoy having conversations like I had tonight with Steve. It, it, it's a passion. It's a hobby of mine. And as I'm honing the craft, look, I'm an untrained journalist. I'm, I'm an untrained – I'm a blogger who put together this, um, this site back in 2015 because I believe in it. I believe in journalism. I believe that information should be readily available. So – Reach out to me at any time. I would love to have a conversation. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter, and uh, we'll make it happen. So with that, everybody have a wonderful and safe and happy holiday, and thank you, as always, for listening to A Minor Detail.